folks, I'm Tilden Reamer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. Hi guys, so last night we arrived at dusk in the Sequoia community of Pine Canape, located right on the Peruvian side of the border with Ecuador. Today is my first full day in the community. Okay, let's see, what can I describe for you guys? So I'm standing right now on the banks of the Napo River, looking out I see a rushing river with a strong current and lush green trees of various sizes and shapes on the other side of the river. Here on my side, there are five large wooden houses in a sort of clearing. They're all in a row, um, and the sequoias actually built these houses by hand with wood from the forest around here. And the houses are all on stilts because the banks of the river flood every year. And in each house lives one family of around 10 or so people, with adults, a few elders, and lots and lots of kids. And they have planted around them a few different types of crops, but the jungle extends pretty immediately um, behind the houses and on either side of them. Last night, we brought all of our things into the house of the chief, who wore a long nightgown-like robe and a string of beads. The rest of the community usually wears western shirts and pants, and they only dress in their traditional clothing for special occasions. So when we got there, they served us wild boar that they had hunted earlier that day with a millet cracker. It was actually really tasty. And when it was time for bed, we just rolled out our hammocks and tied them to the post beams of the house. Um, guys, I so I learned how to sleep in a hammock correctly. Are you guys ready to hear the secret? Okay, so normally you would sit long ways in a hammock with your feet at one end and your head at the other. So all you have to do to comfortably sleep in it is to turn your body diagonally in the hammock 45 degrees. This makes the hammock flat instead of curved and much easier to sleep in. Now, unfortunately, Manuel told me this trick this morning <laughs> after I complained of not sleeping. Oh man, I wish he had told me last night. <laughs> this makes me wonder, what else do I need to know from Manuel about this place and these people? The sequoias are living entre el petróleo, the sequoias now live among the oil fields, cocaine, the colonizers, and now new roads. The current situation for the sequoia community doesn't look particularly bright from the outside. With a history of colonization, missionary activity, a decades-long civil war between Ecuador and Peru, and current issues of rubber extraction, palm oil production, petroleum activity, and Colombian drug cartels on the northern border. Whew, it is an understatement 
to say the odds are stacked against them. In Ecuador, the sequoia currently have no legal title or recognized rights over their ancestral territory. They have been corralled into greatly reduced territory of 50,000 acres and are surrounded by oil fields. Compared with the sequoia in Peru, the sequoias in Ecuador have been far more exposed to outsiders, particularly since Ecuador opened the region to oil companies over the past 50 years. Since the 1970s, petroleum companies, primarily American ones like Chevron Texaco, have used crude oil extraction techniques, never adequately compensated indigenous groups, and left acres of toxic waste. Ningún pueblo indígena está involucrado. Comencemos por algo con la toma de decisiones. No indigenous group has ever been involved especially when it comes to the decision-making process with these oil companies. It's even worse when we look at the development end of things. I insist, there isn't a single indigenous engineer. There isn't a single petroleum engineer. In 50 years, you would think there would be at least one indigenous community who is managing the natural resources in their own territory. Imagine, in your own territory. Pablo's comment reminded me of a quote by Rob Nixon in his book, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. He writes, they arrive with equipment, but no goods to trade and no stories. Possessed of a bewildering incuriosity, they reserve their most intense investigations for the earth below, not the surface people. Bewitched by the unseen geology, the Americans remain indifferent to the eco-cultural history. Research indicates the greater a state's reliance on a single resource, the greater the chances that state is undemocratic, militaristic, corruption-riddled, and non-transparent. These factors then lead to both vertical inequality, meaning a widening class gap between super-rich and ultra-poor and horizontal inequality, like a geographical gulf between research-rich zones and the remainder of the country. In 2017, oil accounted for one-third of Ecuador's total yearly exports, and 23% of people lived below the poverty line in 2016, according to the Borgen Project. Looking out onto the Napo River now, it's hard to imagine that there are heavy pollutants dumped into the water every day. And this is the same river where the sequoias bathe every day. Yikes! <laughs> this is where I bathed this morning. <laughs> Having spent a little more time in the community now, I feel more relaxed. I've been thinking about the universality of some aspects of the human experience. Tickling, for example, is a universal language. Just like kids back in the US, young sequoias love to be tickled. I think the first night I was in the community, I, I didn't really know how to act. I was trying to be cautious not to offend anyone or do something that would be considered culturally inappropriate to the sequoias. A few months before I visited the sequoia, 
I went to a conference of indigenous leaders in Quito with presenters from various members of the 14 recognized ethnic minority groups in Ecuador. There was a range of scientists, academics, and indigenous groups, like the Kofan, Warani, and Quichua, who gave testimonials about the devastating effects, especially health-related illnesses, that have resulted because of the damage that Chevron Texaco has left behind. Learning at the conference that medical studies have shown that over 30,000 people have been affected by cancer and skin diseases caused by unsafe petroleum extraction made the conference attendees' shouts even more palpable. Ese árbol tiene se llama capirona. Capirona. Y ese todo el tiempo está como botando la cáscara, shedding todo el tiempo. Así cuando Okay, it's my second full day here now, and I'm walking through the jungle with Pablo, Manuel, and Cesar, a Sequoia community leader who is on the shorter side and has a wonderfully broad smile and a great laugh. (laughs) He is an interesting character with a unique background. He is a renowned painter, learned Spanish from evangelical missionaries, has traveled throughout Europe and the U.S., and has many visions for the future of his Sequoia community. He is currently showing us a proposed route through the jungle that could be used to take foreigners on tours as part of a proposed ecotourism initiative in the community. You would think that with so much environmental damage created by the petroleum industry in the Amazon, there would be some sort of legal redress. But the legal blowback for these companies has been alarmingly small, especially compared to the havoc they've wreaked. So, for example, in June of 2017, the United States Supreme Court prevented Ecuadorian villagers from collecting 9.5 billion in pollution compensation. This is a judgment that was determined and issued against Chevron six years ago by the Ecuadorian courts. Between 1964 and 1990, Texaco, then acquired by Chevron in 2001, drilled roughly 350 wells across 7,000 square kilometers of Amazon rainforest accruing some 30 billion in profits, and also dumping 68 billion liters of toxic materials into Amazon streams and rivers. But, big surprise, the judge ruled in favor of the companies. Arguably of equal or more importance than the environmental damage to the Sequoia community are the cultural damages which are harder to notice and have taken place over longer periods of time. 
Nosotros hace, yo recuerdo hace 30 años, hace 30 años. Los I remember 30 years ago, the Sequoias, they were frightened by the first companies. I believe back then it was Texaco. In those days, the children wore traditional dress, only loincloths. The young girls especially would get teased and catcalled by the petroleum workers who would call them little women or something like that. This changed how they thought. Now we put on pants in my time we didn't. Since the petroleum companies arrived, we've only slowly lost our traditions. Now we have hardly anything left. We can see that the development of the oil industry was the engine of destruction of the indigenous peoples. I can't definitively say that the industry killed people, but it killed their culture. And when we talk about indigenous culture, culture and forest is the same. There is no separation. So the moment you destroy the forest, you destroy culture or vice versa. Some critics, and certainly much of the political debate, regarding environmental refugees have characterized them as simply economic migrants who are using the lingo of climate change as a justification for willingly moving to a new place. Now, while it's true that having a choice or not in your displacement is often considered a key part of any definition, the complicated way in which environmental displacement occurs calls into question any easy distinction between what counts as a choice to move. For example, the case for people displaced by a natural disaster seems fairly straightforward. But what about people like the Sequoia who have experienced displacement due to the slow weakening of their social economic capacities through the petroleum industries over 50 years. Should this count? And what are the repercussions of having mineral belongings that literally undermine a community's capacity to belong? You know, what forces turn those natural resources in a material and an ethical sense into evil powers that alienate people from the very elements that have sustained them? environmentally and culturally. Petroleum can turn into a mystical substance in many forms, both for the government as a way to get rich quick and for the community that is slowly stripped of its natural environment, which used to hold its sacred spirits. El momento que destruyes la selva, acabas con todos los espíritus que están ahí en la selva, ¿no? Los espíritus. The moment you destroy the jungle, you also destroy all the spirits that live in it. Spirits live in trees, they live in the ground. When earth is removed, when roads are put in, when there is noise of machinery, when you destroy the trees, the spirits die and you no longer have anyone to connect with. Since Cesar was with us, I wanted to get his take on it. So I asked him, how has the Sequoia's spiritual relationship to the environment changed over the years? With the war between Peru and Ecuador, missionaries, the petroleum industry, all of these different forces that infiltrated their lives. 
Después de todo eso, ellos decían, bueno, ya hemos votado a los caucheros, a los hacendados, estamos felices y todo. I remember, after the enslavement of my parents, after they had escaped, after the war started, after all that, my parents finally thought they were free. But then, in the 1950s, the Catholic missionaries arrived. At the time, the Sequoias, we had our own god, Nyanye, which means creator of the universe, of the land, of water, and so on. Nyanye was the divine creator of all the natural elements of our world. And there were different categories of spirits below him that he looked after. So the missionaries arrive and say, here is a representation of Jesus Christ. The Sequoias didn't speak Spanish, but they could understand and they looked at the figure in front of them and they said, okay, if you're so powerful, let's hear him speak. The Sequoias are very wise. And the missionary said, oh no, you see, this is just a representation of Jesus Christ. You see, he died for our sins and he's in heaven now. And then the shaman said, but why did he die? How could your God, who could have been so good, if he was killed? If your God doesn't talk, then don't come talk to us. But my mother told me that within a year, they spotted an airplane coming down the lagoons. It was the evangelicals. This time, they said, this is Jesus Christ who is the Savior. He has the power of the Holy Spirit, and anyone who believes in them will speak new languages and cure the sick. This time, they spoke well because my aunt believed. She wanted those powers. <laughs> Then, my mother began to believe too. My family was the first family to convert. I come from a strong line of powerful women, shamans who held with the power of Nyanye and everything. But my aunt, she wanted more power. From then on, everything changed. And there was separation within the Sequoia tribe, And I was born right in that time, in 1959. As Cesar grew up, he went to church, and the religious leaders saw a lot of promise in him. The evangelicals had good schools, you know, that's how he learned Spanish, and is able to tell us the story. They brought with them vaccines for the community and gave Cesar opportunities to travel and see the world. Mi adolescencia, los 20 hasta 25, 30 años, todo esto, yo fui un, un evangelista completo. In my early 20s through mid-20s, I was a devoted evangelist. But then I started to realize that if I followed the religion completely, I was leaving my culture aside. I was letting it go. Now, well now, I follow my own personal beliefs as I continue walking my journey. Singing, healing people, healing myself, healing people who want to be cured, who have pain with medicinal plants. Yahe is our tradition of medicine, just like the gospel. It has its rules that have to be strictly followed. Yahe, or more commonly known as ayahuasca, is a hallucinogenic vine that grows in the Amazon jungle and has been used by sequoias for thousands of years. Many shamans would take it to help them predict where warring tribes were coming from and how to accurately defeat them. Before consuming it, shamans have to go through a series of rules and rituals. 
For example, you can't consume meat, have sexual relations, eat unhealthy foods, etc. before taking the medicine. Si quieres, por eso el, los secoyas, nosotros los psicopas, decimos, si tú quieres seguir el evangelio, chica, chica, That's why the sequoias say, Yahé is a path. I myself now see it as a path. The gospel of Jesus, too, is the path. That's why now many sequoias say, if you want to follow the gospel, girl, boy, adult, whoever, follow it but with faith and conviction of Jesus Christ. If you're a man or woman who wants to follow the gospel of the Sequoias, follow our traditions and our rules. If you're living on the wrong side of the road, sinning and the like, and you're doing yourself a disservice, if you yourself end up tricking yourself, you will end up worse than either of those options. That's the way that I see it now. By my third day here in Pine Canape, I'm coming to the understanding that even though the Sequoias speak a different language, have different daily routines, etc., bottom line, they're still just people. So there was a young Sequoia woman named Martina, who happened to be the same age as me, and she has two young kids and a month-old baby that she's been breastfeeding constantly. We marveled together at how different each of our lives were. She was amazed that I didn't have any kids and that I wasn't even married yet. You know, despite these clear differences in our lives, I somehow felt a bond with her. We both had 23 years of memories. Every evening before dinner and before the sunset, the men of the village would play a cutthroat game of soccer. Justin Bieber music would play in the background to rally the teams as they ran barefoot through the muddy jungle clearing. Meanwhile, I was picking up every kid I could find, swinging them around and tickling them until their faces turned red. Despite all of this, their life did seem more rooted in experience, in the physicality of life. The kids played in the dirt all day. Everyone bathed in the river with a bar of soap. No one cared if their feet got muddy. They seemed more connected to nature, closer to the source, than any typical US kid who is glued to their phone all day. It struck me that our world needs to value indigenous knowledge. I mean, they can walk through the jungle at night with no directionals or lights. They know every plant species and animal call. I remember Manuel telling me that as part of an activity that he and Pablo did a few years back, the sequoias identified and cataloged over 1,500 plant species in just three weeks. We need to create spaces where scientists are the ones learning from sequoias not the other way around. In the Sequoia community, there is the need to modernize and adapt, and at the same time, the longing to preserve traditional ways of life. How will we reconcile these two forces? Ese es para mí el reto más, más importante y más difícil, 
porque normalmente los pueblos indígenas o los pueblos tribales del mundo cuando se unen a la sociedad global se unen abajo For me, I see this as the most important challenge. It's very difficult because normally, when indigenous peoples join the global society, they enter at the bottom most rung. Isn't it true? The global world is designed in such a way where people have very specialized knowledge that is assigned to a limited number of tasks. So, when the Sequoias join the global world, they're assigned to be a land clearer, a motorcycle driver, a low-level petroleum worker, a drug runner. The Sequoias have a wide and deep understanding of the way the natural world works. They have legends. They know, for example, that when a specific constellation is at a certain point in the sky, that is when the corn must be sown. They know thousands of plants. But how can this knowledge help them join the global world? That is the question. Mm, so true. So what options do you think they have? I think one that is important is that they I think that one of the most important things they can do is continue to maintain and use their territory and look for economic models that allow that. Tourism is one option, science could be another. For example, it would be interesting to create scientific stations where sequoias could share their knowledge with the world and that sharing of knowledge helps them support themselves and gain new knowledge. So I think that science and tourism or scientific tourism these three things are economic activities where Sequoia's broad knowledge is useful because people go for their knowledge and pay for that knowledge. So there is an opportunity for a positive growth cycle there. On our last night in the village, we found ourselves sitting with the whole community around a fire in the dark, just chatting. How long had it been since I sat in the dark with nothing to do, no screens to look at, no lights? I was reminded of just how important being out in nature is. There is a magic of the world that can only be found in the dark, under the flickering light of a flame. Muy buenos días todavía. Muchas gracias por vernos. Somos lo mismo. Estamos luchando aquí por un por un ideal, una idea conjunta, ¿no? Y creemos que es para el bienestar de ustedes, ¿no es cierto? Queremos que la cultura secoya viva, viva para siempre, ojalá muchos años. Ojalá cuando mis nietos vienen a visitar todavía hay secoyas aquí, aunque no tengo hijos. Pero van a venir a visitar los otros del cielo, del cielo. I felt the magic. We created it with our words and our energy. It's still possible to create, but you have to make space for it. It's not in the air anymore. Jadira, one of our fellow Sequoia travelers, got up and spoke in Sikopa about why she had come to visit her relatives, about what she saw for the future of the Sequoias. Later that night, I asked Cesar what he saw as the way for his people to move forward. Añadir o ampliar el tema de 
de proyectos para poder apoyar a los adultos mayores, hacer sus casitas. I'm looking into the idea of a project to support elderly sequoias, to build them houses like the ones Manuel and Cristina built on the coast for the victims of the earthquake. Here, our elderly aren't well taken care of, and they need better living conditions. Also, it would be great to have a bamboo buildings for a woman to gather and make their crafts, art, ceramics that could be sold. I've been thinking a lot about it now, but now it's time to sit down and talk to Manuel and Pablo and make it more concrete. Manuel, Pablo, Cristina, everyone who is a part of Fundación Raíz, or in English, Roots Foundation, have been working on a variety of different projects, from land rights, furthering education, the production and distribution of a ají spice produced by the Sequoia women, building wells, creating kilns for ceramic production, and building eco-cabins for tourists to come visit. The Sequoia community is at an exciting crossroads. Ideas are endless, and there are so many different directions the community could head in. It's hard to know exactly what economic ventures will pan out or what activity will help preserve the natural environment. But like attendees of the Anti-Petroleum Conference, the Sequoias seem resolute that the petroleum industry is not the way forward. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to www.forcesthatmoveus.com. If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes Churay para los Arina y Taita Embadura by Alex Alviar, California Winds by Bruno E., Higher Powered by Audio Hertz, Dr. Dan Will See You Now by Matt Oakley, Phantom by Destiny and Time, Distant Lands by Hanu Dixit, and Sunshine on Sand by Unicorn Heads. <laughs>